If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn it on and go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 and 2. We're going to cover two chapters uh, by God's grace uh, in this last session as we talk about the glory of God and ordinary people. Thank you for sticking around. I know it, you've had sermon overload by now. Uh, we have, uh, we, we've, we've been diving in for uh, uh, several sermons, breakout sessions. Thank you guys for being here. College ministers, thank you for bringing uh, students here. I pray you've been refreshed. Uh, my soul has been refreshed. And what I would like to do in, uh, in this last session is just encourage you. I'm going to fly over some of the stuff J.D. covered actually last night. We didn't collaborate on that. He actually was preaching part of my sermon somehow. And, um, but I want to intensify some things he said, accent, underline, and leave hopefully encouraged with the work of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, so I, I wrote a book called Ordinary that is a book that's in, trying to encourage people to do ordinary things like hospitality and neighbor love with gospel intentionality. And what I want to talk about this afternoon is the power we have to do that, the power we have to live with gospel sensitivity uh, in this world. So let's pause for a brief prayer and ask for the Lord's grace. Now, Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So when I was a kid, we used to play this game. It really wasn't a game. It was more of a way to be a jerk. It was called psych. You guys ever do psych? You know, so somebody says, hey, man, I'm drinking this really good orange pop. Uh, and, and you're like, really, it's good? Yeah, it's really good. You can have some of it. Uh, and you, you reach out your hand and they say, psych. Uh, so you're, you're talking to a friend and, hey, man, I was talking with uh, Elizabeth and, and uh, she really likes you. She wants you to call her. And you're like, really? She said that? Psych. Uh, Detroit Lions throw a pass for the first down. Ref picks up the flag for no apparent reason, doesn't even explain it, and says, psych. You know, it's not a first down. Um, psych is really, it was just a license to be a jerk. And, and the reason psych really hurts us is because no one wants unfulfilled expectations, unfulfilled promises. And how many of you had at least one promise in your life not kept by someone? Someone has overpromised and underdelivered. That's a really tough place to be, and it happens all the time. You know, you make a dinner reservation. We have five kids, uh, me and my wife, and, and we say, well, Marita, table for seven. You get to the restaurant, and they say, I'm sorry, sir, I don't see your name on the reservation. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to punch you in the neck. Because we made, made this reservation uh, like yesterday. Or even worse is when you're driving with five kids in a minivan, and you've booked a hotel room. And you're praying, Jesus, take the wheel. I just want to get out of this minivan. And you get there. Uh, do you have Marita on, on the name? No, sir. We, sorry, we don't see your name there. Or even worse is when you have, an, uh, you have a, a seat on a plane and the boarding pass. And they said, well, we've oversold the plane. You don't have a seat. Like I got a boarding pass. And I got a weapon. You know, like this is very frustrating to have these unfulfilled promises in your life, and we've all experienced them. Some of you experience them after graduation. You think, man, once I graduate, there's going to be this job, there's going to be this life, and, and you might be disappointed. Or maybe you're in a dating relationship, or maybe you, you think you want to be in a dating relationship. You meet that special someone on, on Christian Mingle, and, uh, or, or Christian Tingle, even better, and, and they are not what you thought they were going to be. Unfulfilled promises, and life is filled with games of psych. But the good news of the Bible is this. God doesn't play psych. God keeps all of his promises, all of them. Every word of God proves true. And when you think about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and 2, this is a massive fulfillment of a, of a promise. This promise, you read it right here in Acts 1 verse for as they were staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus told them, you will receive power. That's a promise. Previously, this promise was given in the book of John. J.D. referenced last night. So in John 14 to 16, we have three consecutive chapters where Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away, but the, the Spirit is going to come and lead you into all truth, and it's to your advantage that this happen. And I will not leave you as orphans, he said. I will come to you. That's a promise. 
And the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 of the book of Acts is on the day of Pentecost, which is one of the most important days in the history of the world, where this promise of the Spirit has now come. Joel prophesied about it. Jesus taught about it. The disciples are waiting on it. And now this promise is fulfilled. And now we have everything we need to fulfill God's mission on this earth. So Paul calls the Holy Spirit in at least two places, in Ephesians 1 and Galatians 3, the promised Spirit. And I want to encourage you with three truths about the promised Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. A lot of people get really nervous around Acts chapter 2, and they want to quickly tell you all that the Holy Spirit cannot do anymore. I like what John Murray said, if Pentecost is not repeated, neither is it retracted. This is the age of the Spirit. We are living in the age of the Spirit. Tozer said it's not that the Spirit came and went, it's that he came and stayed. He is with us now. One theologian, Abraham Kuyper, said that the day of Pentecost was like the mayor of a city setting up this great water system. This water system has been now pumped into all the houses, and every new home gets attached to this water system. And every Christian now enjoys the benefits and blessings of this great day of Pentecost, where this promise of power and blessing is fulfilled. So here's the first truth that I want you to see, and this is going to cover Acts 1, 1 to 2, 21. So hang in there. First truth, the ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, armed with the Word of God, can accomplish the mission of God. The ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, armed with the Word of God, can accomplish the mission of God. Now, there are four pieces to that, so let's just think about it for a moment. Let's start with armed with the Word of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he says in the first book, the book of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what was Jesus doing? For three years, he's teaching. He's arming them. He's equipping them. He's instructing them. He says that he uh, here is spending time with the apostles. And in verse 3, for 40 days, Jesus spoke after the resurrection with these apostles about the kingdom of God. That would have been a good conference, huh? 40 days with the resurrected Jesus. You'd have paid good money for that one. In Luke 24, the first book, at the end of Luke, Jesus is alive and, and no one really understands, you know, what's going on. And he explains, hey, it's, gonna, it's okay, I'm right here. And has a meal with them. And then it says he walks them through the Old Testament and shows them how everything is, that has been promised is fulfilled in me. And so these disciples were taught really, really well. Really well. We see in the book of Acts, then, this phrase that's repeated over and over. The word of God continued to increase and multiply. The word of God continued to increase and multiply. Therefore, if you want to be a disciple maker, learn the Bible. Jesus spent three years and then 40 days instructing, teaching, right? Equipping these apostles, these Christians, that they may go and make disciples of all nations. So learn the Bible, love the Bible. If you're at this conference and you're perhaps a new Christian, I just want to encourage you to to be be a lover of the Scriptures. I became a Christian in college. I was 20 years old. Second baseman led me to Christ when I was uh, in college. I played shortstop. He played second base. He used to witness to guys on second base. On the other team, they would go for three, you know, so they didn't have to hear the sermon. And he... And, and Stephen hounded me, and, and uh, it's a long story, but I became a Christian, and then he said, hey, we're going to start a Bible study on our, our baseball team. And I was like, well, I think I'd better go get a Bible. And I noticed these huge study Bibles. They had notes in the bottom with all the answers in them. And I thought, well, I need to get one of those. And so I got one of these, these big ones with the answers in it. And, and I just studied the Bible. I mispronounced words. I didn't know, you know, a lot of the vernacular. Hey, turn to Peter, they would say. And I was like, who's Peter? Are you Peter? Like, I don't, I don't understand what you guys are talking about. What's your favorite verse? I have no idea. I like the maps. Those are, actually, those are really cool. Um, I don't have any verses. The first Bible study was on the prodigal son. I was 20 years old. I'd never heard, or I probably heard, but I didn't know the story of the prodigal son. And that's about now 18 years ago. My point is, if you're in this room, you're not in the Bible yet, Start. Start. Some of you are not even in college yet. There's no age requirement. Dig in. Many of these disciples were teenagers. Jesus is teaching. He's instructing. And if you want to be a disciple maker, start here. That's armed with the word of God. But secondly, notice here, 
underneath this point. They were empowered by the Spirit of God. Now think about this for a moment. You, Jesus tells them, essentially, wait, on, wait in Jerusalem on the Holy Spirit because you lack something. What could they possibly lack? Three years with Christ teaching. Forty days after the resurrection. Now, this is the best seminary you could go to, to be quite honest. But three years with Jesus, that's a little better. Right? It's a little better. And yet he says, you're still not ready. Because it's not just theological depth that you need. You need power. He says you lack something. If anyone could say, I've been educated enough, therefore I'm ready, it's the disciples. But they're not. You need power. We need power. And so they wait. They wait, and so he tells them, down in in, in verse 8, you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, J.D. referenced last night, says, I spent, he said one time, I spend half of my time telling Christians to study doctrine. I spend the other half telling them doctrine is not enough. That's what Jesus is doing here. Teaching, 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 teaching. You need something. You need power. You need power. I was reading recently, there was this, uh, a guy who posed a question. He said, how did in New England, did they go from the Great Awakenings in the mid-1700s with Edwards and Whitfield, then to deism, which is a generic belief in God. He's not involved in life or anything. No, no cross, no resurrection. To deism, to now what we kind of dub as moralistic therapeutic deism, which is kind of like just be good and nice and friendly and that sort of thing and, and feel good about yourself. How did they go from the Great Awakening to that? And the author made a really good point. He said before they changed their beliefs, they changed their practice. They lived as if the Spirit of God did not exist And after you live for a season as if the presence and spirit of God is not there, you change your theology. Uh, Apparently, it doesn't exist. And we've got to be really careful. We don't fall into the same trap of living as functional binatarians, father and son, and trying to live this Christian experience on our own. It won't work. We need the spirit of God. In his book, 30 Years That Changed the World, Michael Green wrote this. Three crucial decades in world history. This is about the book of Acts. That is all it took. In the years between A.D. 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion in the world the world has ever seen to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has had more than 2 billion adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of the countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. And then the Spirit came. And that's all you have in the book of Acts, 120 or so. Far less than in this room right here. What might God do with us? If we yield ourselves to his teaching. If we desperately seek his power. And the question is now, on whom are you depending? On whom are you depending? He's teaching these disciples, you you don't live the Christian experience out on your own. You need word and spirit. So here's a little riddle that might summarize these first A and B. Some Christians are all word and no spirit, right? Some are all spirit and no word. All word, no spirit, you dry up. All spirit, no word, you blow up. Both word and spirit, you grow up. This is how the Christian lives. We're consumed with the scriptures. We're we're desperate for the spirit. Jesus is empowering these disciples. These are ordinary people empowered by him to fulfill this great mission. Let's think about the mission now for a moment. What is it that Jesus was sending these guys to do? Back up in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to both. Watch this now. Do and teach. By the power of the spirit... The church is continuing the mission of Jesus. What was the mission of Jesus? It included both words and deeds. All that he began to do and all that he began to teach. And that's what we're commissioned in this world to do. Jesus told us, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Deeds matter. We bring glory to God through deeds 
through acts of mercy, compassion, justice, you see? But not just deeds. The gospel is an announcement. It includes words. So he says down in verse 8, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to bear testimony. You're going to be persecuted. And they're not persecuted for just loving people. They're persecuted for what they say and what they believe. And that's what Jesus has sent us in the world to do, to continue out this ministry of word and deed. These two go together. John Calvin called this the holy knot, word and deed. Jesus' deeds illustrated his words. His words explained his deeds. And now we're sent into the world by the Spirit with the word to do just that. And notice now where we're to do it. He's given them, starting in verse 8 here, a global mission, a global vision that goes for all Christians. You're going to be my witnesses in all places of the world. You notice they're really occupied with Jerusalem. They're still very focused on their particular hood. Verse 6, they say, hey, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, basically, that's none of your business. Right? Verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's not your business, but this is your business. Verse 8, don't worry about that. Worry about this. You're going to receive power, and you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, this was not new. The Old Testament teaches that Israel was to be a light to the nations. From the very beginning in, in the book of Genesis, Abraham is the father of many nations. But they, they, they really had a hard time embracing this, believing this. And so do we sometimes. Do you really think your life involves the globe? It does, if you're a Christian. We don't have a, a village God. We have a global God. We don't have a tribal deity. We have a global Savior. And he's trying to get their, 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 their vision. Their, their vision is far too small. They're still wrapped up right here. So even, I, you know, it's kind of funny in, Genesis, in uh, at Acts 10, 45, the Gentiles, when they become Christians, they say even the Gentiles have received the Spirit. They're kind of blown away that God could work among people outside of their own area. And so he's blowing up this, this mindset. Now, this again is in the context of Jesus teaching on the work of the Spirit. I think it's safe to say one of the marks of a Christian who's living by the power of the Spirit is they love the nations. They love the nations. They love all tribes, all peoples. Why? Because that's what God cares about. And we care about what he cares about when we're filled with the Spirit. Now, down in chapter 2, if you want to flip back over there, here is an illustration, day of Pentecost, of how our God is a global God. So they need an apostle, and they, they run through the, you know, the process there in, at the end of chapter 1 and, and find the, the qualified apostle. And then it says in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, Pentecost means uh, 50, Pente 50. It's 50 days after the Passover. This is one of the three pilgrimage pilgrimages that every male over the age of 12 would make to go to Jerusalem. They were there from everywhere. Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest. At the end of chapter 2 and verse 41, there are 3,000 souls saved. This is a new harvest. The greatest miracle at Pentecost are not the signs and wonders. It's 3,000 people converted. So Pentecost is representing this new age and this new harvest and what God is going to do among the nations in bringing in the harvest. So read it with me here. It says they're all in one place, and I think that's important, that the Christians are together. Earlier, they were together, right? Christianity is a corporate faith. It's not me and Jesus, it's we and Jesus. They're all together in this place. Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Luke is, he's, he's stretching for language. It's very hard for him to, so it's not really wind, it's like the wind. It's a sound like the wind. It's a rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, probably the upper room. Verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. So fire, fire represents God's presence, God's power. In Exodus 3, it was a burning bush. At Mount Sinai, fire. We read throughout, you know, the Old Testament in the temple, there was fire. Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Here, God is consecrating a new temple, a new people. His presence is dwelling on individuals, resting on each one of them. But notice the image is of a tongue, a tongue of fire. Again, Luke is, is having a hard time explaining this. Divided tongues as a fire, what does this mean? I think it means simply this, 
that the Spirit has come, he's, he, he's fell upon each individual Christian for the purpose of speaking. He's going to tell us later in chapter 2 that all Christians are prophets in a general sense. God's coming to purify us like Isaiah the prophet. He's coming to empower us like Moses. He's coming to, to set us on fire, if you will, to speak his word. This is happening among everybody as they're sitting in this room, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what's then explained in verses 5 to 13 is how these disciples from Galilee were speaking in a known language, another dialect. And it wasn't as though they, you know, went to class to study Spanish. They were, it was as a miracle. Now, this is not speaking in tongues as most people think speaking in tongues. If you wanted to argue for that, you would need to be in 1 Corinthians. But I'm not in 1 Corinthians. I'm in Acts 2. What's really clear about Acts 2 is that these Christians are speaking in another language. Notice verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven, and at the sound of the multitude they came together. I think this is a little foretaste of the multitude in Revelation. Every tribe and tongue and language, you see? They're gathered together. This is a new covenant. This is a day of celebration. And God is giving us a foretaste of what his kingdom is like. And they're all hearing them speak in their own language. And they're amazed and astonished. Are not all these speaking Galileans? It's not a compliment. Where are they from? Are they from, are they from Youngsville? Are they speaking this language or whatever podunk town you grew up in? Keep careful now. And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? That was my brother Mackenzie down here. And here he lists who's present. Notice Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Sounds like a hip-hop, doesn't it? Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the works of God. They're praising God in their own language. And they're all amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others mock, saying, they're filled with wine. I have no other explanation for it, they think. Now, what in the world is going on in this language? Well, some have looked at Acts 2, and they've said, you know what this is? This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. You know the story of Tower of Babel? They, they try to build a name for themselves, and God confuses the languages, and they all divide. And what they say here is this is a picture of all the nations now being united. I think that's, that's partly true. But you notice in Acts 2 what isn't a reversal of Babel. God doesn't give them all one language. He keeps their language. I think because God is glorified in both unity and diversity. In Revelation, we see every tribe and language is there. Now, this is just one for the ride home, perhaps. What language will we speak in heaven? I guarantee most Americans, when they envision heaven, they think everybody's going to speak English. <laughs> Only Americans. With the, well, the Chinese probably think when they envision heaven, it's going to be in Chinese. And the Welsh think it's going to be Welsh. And the Germans think it'll be German. D.A. Carson asked this question. Some think it will speak Hebrew. Some think it will be some heavenly language. And Carson, the scholar, says, I think we'll speak them all. After all, we'll have time to learn them all. It wouldn't it be awesome just to see brothers and sisters, bonjour, comment allez-vous, you know, and, and you're just, you're praising the Lord. You have your Russian friends, you have your French friends, and they're there from every tribe, tongue, and language. Well, I don't know exactly what's, what it's going to be like on that great day, but we know here that God, I think, is giving these disciples early on this beautiful picture that the gospel is for the nations. It's for the nations. I have a friend who was as a missionary in the Middle East. He was translating the Bible, and he was translating with this 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 friend from uh, uh, who was a Kurd. And if you know anything about the Kurds, they trace their origin back to the Medes. And this guy was not a Christian. He was translating the Bible with my friend, and he got to this word here on the Medes, and he just drops his pencil. My friend says, and he says, "You mean to tell me on the day the church was born, 
my people were there. Most people, most religions, it's exclusive. It's narrowed to a particular type of person or particular group of people. My friend was able to encourage him and tell him, yes, it's because the gospel really is for the nations. And so we have here this beautiful picture of ordinary people being empowered by the Spirit of God, armed with the Word of God, to accomplish the global mission of God of word and deed. Now, where do you see ordinary people in this? Well, it's not hard to see, is it? Verse 7, they're all Galileans. Now, who does God use to start his church? These guys didn't go to the rabbinic schools. They were probably not voted the most likely to succeed. That's what's freaking everybody out here in Acts 2. These are the fishermen. And they're speaking in these languages. Can you imagine the guys from Duck Dynasty? Sigh. Going up in front of Harvard elites. And uh, in the Senate. And giving a, perfect, a speech in perfect French. That's kind of what you got here. These guys, they haven't been to school to learn this stuff. Where does this come from? God's given a little foretaste, a picture. And who's he using? The Galileans. Let's flip over to chapter 4. Notice this example in chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, ordinary men. And they were astonished. Even their leaders were not sensational. Common, ordinary, uneducated men. But what was the secret? They'd been with Jesus. Who does God use? He uses people that's been with Jesus. They've yielded themselves to Jesus. Acts 8, 4, J.D. quoted last night, they all, except the apostles, went about preaching the word. God is building his church through these very common men. Chapter 2, verse 14, now Peter explains the day of Pentecost. The example of God using ordinary people is right there in front of us. And then he explains, there is a warrant for believing this, that God is going to use not the professional theologians, but everybody in his mission. Everybody gets to participate. And so he explains it in verse 14. Peter, and remember now, this is Peter. This is an example of the Spirit emboldening a guy. Just a few days earlier, he's... He's cowering in the presence of a little girl saying, I don't know Jesus. And now he's standing up with the 11. And he's going to, it says, lift his voice. It says God spoke the universe into existence. God is speaking his church into existence by his mighty word. And Peter is lifting up his voice. And he's going to address, first of all, to clarify an issue. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's just the third hour of the day. That's nine in the morning. If you're drinking at nine in the morning, you got some problems. Just saying. Even if it's five o'clock somewhere. It's nine o'clock where you're at. And that's a problem. Then he quotes Joel. He says, I got some Bible verses. And basically what he's saying in Joel is this, what you're seeing, is that, what Joel was saying. This is the fulfillment of that. What was that? In the last days. He changes a little bit. Joel said afterward. Now Peter can say, right here, the last days. We're in the last days. We're waiting on the final act of redemption. Return of the king. Last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And watch this now. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall dream, uh, see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, let's unpack that for a moment. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians, not all prophesy. Peter says here, all Christians are prophets. So we got, we, got to, we got to work through that. Obviously, I think what Paul is talking about is a particular gift. Peter is talking about here is this general truth that all Christians in the New Covenant are prophets. How so? Well, what did prophets have and what did they do? Prophets, first of all, had the knowledge of God. Amos 3 says God does nothing without revealing his secrets to the prophets. Now you and I have the knowledge of God. They receive their revelation mainly through dreams and visions. We don't have to do that. Over in 1 John, John tells the Christians in one place, he says, hey, you guys, you don't need anyone to teach you. 
And you're kind of like, well, aren't we sort of wasting our time here? What does he mean? He means you have access to the truth yourself, every Christian. You can know God. That's what the prophet had. That's the privilege that the prophets had. They had this knowledge, and because we have a better prophet in Jesus, and we're united to him, we can know God. But what did the prophet do? The prophet spoke, and so do we. And we see that teased out through the New Testament, do we not? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching one another. Romans 15.14, instruct one another. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer to people. Matthew 28, make disciples by teaching other people. That's what we're doing now. God really does use ordinary people, and this is a, a text that is, that is it really a warrant for that belief, that it's not just the paid professionals that are speaking the gospel. It's all Christians. Everyone. Everybody gets to participate. What that means, you know, practically, is if you meet, a, meet someone and they say, hey, can you tell me how to become a Christian? You shouldn't have to say, let me go get my pastor. What's the difference in Islam and Christianity? Well, let me tell you. Everyone in a general sense now has the capacity to speak for God. What a privilege it is. He goes on to say, people need to repent and believe. Verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that leads us to number two. That one took a while. These two will not take that long, I promise. Okay? Point one, the ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, armed with the Word of God, can accomplish the mission of God. Number two. The ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, will exalt the Son of God. You know, what is the job of the, of the Holy Spirit primarily? John 16, verse 4, 14 rather, John 16, 14. Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit says, He will glorify me. This is what happens when a person is empowered by the Spirit. They stop thinking and talking about themselves all the time. And they start thinking and talking about Jesus all the time. You see it played out throughout the book of Acts. Over in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, they tell them, you fill Jerusalem with this teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And we charge you not to teach in the name. They can't stop talking about him. Acts chapter 5, verse 42 Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Why? Because they're empowered by the Spirit. Read straight through the book of Acts. Spirit of God is empowering these ordinary believers so much that they are now consumed with Him and they can't stop talking about Him. And that's exactly what Peter does in this sermon. He stands up and he preaches this sermon. That just points people to Christ. So, Christian friend, this is a good examination, I think. Are you all about yourself? It's a good indication you're not living in the fullness of the Spirit. Now, we live in a selfie world, do we not? And if there's anything we need in this world is to get over ourselves. If you're a self-absorbed person, you're not very interesting... Okay? You're going to frustrate people, and you're violating the very purpose for which God made you. Jesus is interesting. And when the Spirit is working in our lives, we get over ourselves. I don't know if you've, you've heard uh, Jim Gaffigan's little bit on myself. You know the comedian Gaffigan? Gaffigan's talking about going to the gym, and he's like, I don't get all the mirrors in a gym. I know what I look at. That's why I'm in a gym. And he goes on, satirically mocking the person who keeps looking at himself in the gym. If I'm going to go to the gym, I want to look at something like myself. I want to look at myself while I work on myself. I should do a recording so I can listen to myself while I look at myself while I work on myself. As I leaf through Self Magazine, read how myself can improve myself. Maybe I'll go to Facebook and look at photos of myself, read what myself has written about myself myself that's our day isn't it all about ourselves how many of you would just like to say let's be rid with the addiction to ourselves Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 one of the purposes of the death of Jesus is that we no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and was raised 
The gospel frees us from our addiction to self. The Spirit comes, empowers us to make much of Jesus in word and deed, in thought and action. That's what he does. His purpose is to glorify, to put a spotlight upon the Son. If our lives are, if we're walking in the Spirit, people will begin to see that our lives are pointed to Jesus. So notice how Peter does it in this sermon here. It takes two and a half minutes to read it. I know it looks like a lot of verses, but we can do it. The sermon is really simple, actually. He basically says, the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Repent. The tomb's empty, throne's occupied. That ought to get you out of the bed in the morning, right? That'll sustain you every day. The resurrection is not a truth to die on. It's a truth to live on. And he tells them in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He says, you saw Jesus walk around. He starts with the man Jesus. Then he talks with the plan in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. It's a great mystery here that this was part of God's plan, yet you're responsible for putting him to death. I think Peter has to say something like this because people looked at Jesus, especially Jews, and saw him as a pathetic victim dying. How could he be the Messiah? And Peter's saying this is part of a great plan. This is the plan of God. This is not Jesus dying as a a loser. This is part of God's great plan. But you're responsible. You put him to death. Verse 24, but God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You can't hold him. You can't keep him down. And if you're in Christ, death can't hold you either. And so from the tomb, he then points us to the kingship of Jesus. And he quotes David, the great king. And throughout the Psalms, David makes statements that really can't be fulfilled in him. There are these little flashes in the Psalms, that statements that David says, and you're like, Who, who's he talking about? What he writes somehow transcends David himself. And one of those verses is here in Psalm 16, when, when David writes in verse 27 here, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, that's not David, because he goes on to say, Peter does in verse 29 and following, that you can go to David's tomb, he's still there. So what you have in the psalm, by by the time you get to the end of the psalms, you have an entire Davidic, messianic expectation. Everybody's anticipating this king. Who is this king? We keep sort of hearing about in the psalms. And so Peter says, you know what, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David did, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. We saw him. We saw him. John 20, over and over, they saw him. They saw him. Thomas, I won't believe until I see him. He sees him. Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen him. Much of our faith rests upon this eyewitness account. I've been to the two places in Israel where they say Jesus was buried. It doesn't really matter because he's not in either place. You can go to David's tomb, there he is. You go to Jesus' tomb, he's gone. He's gone. And that's the sermon. Jesus is risen. Jesus is the coming king. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the, prom, the, from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's almost as if before he, he sat down, he looked at the Father and said, Father, you promised. And the Father said, yes. And he pours out his spirit. The ascended king pours out his spirit, gives gifts to his children. He's the ascended king. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, he ascended to the heaven, heavens and he gave gifts to men. He summarizes his sermon. He quotes Psalm 110, another great messianic psalm. David writes, the Lord said to my Lord. Who is he referring to? Well, Peter tells us how to understand it. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let therefore the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now this, this really rocked their world. Jesus is the king. Now, what what many want to do with Jesus is domesticate him. So we we end up having a a Jesus that is not to be feared. 
not to stand in awe of. Notice how Peter preaches. He's not soft-pedaling the gospel. I want you to believe just a little bit about it, and then I'm going to give you the really bad news later. Up front, he says, he's the king. Repent. Stand in awe of him. Perhaps no one has written better about this in very vivid terms than C.S. Lewis in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's this great scene where Lucy is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. It's always good to quote Mr. and Mrs. Beaver on a Saturday afternoon. Lucy asks, is, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was, was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about beating a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the king Peter's preaching. Stand in awe of him. Surrender your life to him. Christianity is not about cleaning up, flying right, straightening up, and attending a church every now and then. It's about submitting your life to the king. And you submit now or you submit later? I say we submit now. That's Peter's sermon. What happened? Well, that leads me to the final point. Spirit of God adds to the people of God by turning rebels into sons and daughters of God. Spirit of God adds to the people of God. We see that throughout the book of Acts. The Lord added to their number by turning rebels into sons and daughters of God. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They are convicted of sin. This is John chapter 16, verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world. That's what the Spirit is doing here. And they say, what shall we do? This is an evangelist's dream. They give the invitation. What do we do? And the good news of the gospel, of course, is you can't do anything. It's already been done. It's been done. All you need to do is look to Christ. And that's what Peter says. Repent. Stop trusting in whatever you're trusting. He says, be baptized, which isn't an outward expression of faith. Repent and believe. Give evidence of that belief. Repent and believe and you will find forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then I love this promise. For the promise is for you. Jesus doesn't over-promise and under-deliver. He says this is a promise. Repent, believe, your sins will be forgiven. Really will. And the Spirit of God will indwell you. This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he is drawing some to himself, Peter says. And verse 40, and with many other words, which means this is not the entirety of Peter's sermon that we have. A lot of people look at Peter's sermon like, he went two and a half minutes, you're going really long. Many other words Peter droned on, I think, oh, well over an hour. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Notice here, Peter doesn't just address them as individual sinners. He sees them as being part of a generation of sinners as well. They're participating in the sins of the generation like we do. Be a different generation. Be a different culture. Be a different people. And so, verse 41, those who received the word were baptized. You notice baptism follows belief here in the scriptures. They received the word, they believed, they were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a good day, isn't it? Ice Cube said it was a good day when you don't have to use your AK. This is a good day. First, first day, 3,000 souls. I have to say it was a good day. Church plant, how'd it go, man? We had 3,000 converted. It's a really good day. And what's happening here? You see in the next paragraph, I'll just stop, but in the next paragraph, they're added to a people. Because Christianity is not just about you and Jesus. It is personal, but it's not individualistic. They're, being, they're now part of a people. And the Lord adds to their number. Now, this is the good news, right? 
God saves people through the preaching of the gospel. They weren't saved by seeing miracles. They were saved by seeing, hearing the gospel and repenting and believing. And then they're added to the number, and the Spirit of God is doing this. Do you believe this will happen when you share the gospel? Why not? You have everything you need. You're saying, look at me. That's what they were saying. They're Galileans. You know, I had the wonderful privilege about four years ago to baptize my own dad. I became a Christian in college, as I said, and I wanted to see my dad become a believer more than anything. I gave him a book when I became a Christian, and he got mad and said, Son, you're just trying to convert me. And I said, Yeah, I am. My dad's a blue-collar factory worker. He grew up in Detroit. He worked in the same factory for 34 years. Retired at age 59. was not a Christian. And we're at Thanksgiving, and my dad said, Son, uh, I, I wouldn't mind going to church, but I don't like, you know, this particular church where, where the family goes. And, and I said, Well, Dad, why don't you pick a different church? And I don't always encourage that, but that's what he did. And he and my mom started looking at churches, and I just couldn't believe. My dad was calling me, giving me sermon notes. He finally found a little church, about 60 people. I knew it was getting serious when my dad, they, my parents live in Kentucky, uh, when they skipped the uh, final eight game when Kentucky played North Carolina on Sunday night, and he went to church instead. And I was like, Dad, I'm just there because they pay me. You know, I would be watching that game. I'm really impressed that you, you, you're, you're at this, you're, 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 you're worshiping on Sunday night. My sister and I are texting each other, hey, Dad gave an offering. Hey, Dad bought a Bible. Hey, Dad bought a book, How to Read the Bible. Here's my dad. He's about 60 years old now. Never had a spiritual conversation with him my whole life. When I left for seminary, he thought I was crazy. Sold my car, packed a trunk, flew to New Orleans. I was a student teacher. School had offered me a job to teach and coach. My dad thought that was awesome. I said, I'm going to school. Pastor came to visit my dad. He stayed about two hours. Most pastors didn't stay two minutes as they would try to visit my dad over the years. And he said, Gary, don't you think it's about time for you to be baptized? But I said, yeah, I think it is. But I'd really like for my son to do it. He said, I don't know if he has time, but he calls me up. I'm like, yeah, I got a, I got a few days, Dad. I think I can work that out. So the day I, I, I drove here to North Carolina to plant a church and come on this great faculty. I first went to Kentucky. My dad stood up in front of this little congregation and he says, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And I never hugged my dad before. And I was able to say in this water, I baptize you, my brother, my father. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And gave him this big hug. And I drove here, started church. Six months later, my dad came sat down in the living room. He said, son, I've read through the whole Bible. I'm like, really? He said, yeah. Said, I love the New Testament. I don't understand the Old Testament. <laughs> and I'm like, we don't need the dad. We're just faking it. Just, <laughs> I, I clarified. I just keep reading it, man. Just, just keep reading. And he did. He's starting this little you know, Sunday school class, two other new believers in the pastor. Pastor has to go out of town. He says, Gary, you're teaching. My dad emails me, son, you got anything on Philippians? I'm teaching. I gave him a commentary by Warren Wearsby on Philippians. He photocopied it and handed it out to the class, and they just read it for an hour. And, and, and the, class, the class said, that's the best teaching we've ever had. Can we do this again? We want to start over in the book of Philippians. They were at the end of it. So I printed out the whole thing in Wearsby. I called my friends at Lagos, and I said, I just want to order Wearsby. And give it to my dad. Can you do that? We've never had that done before. Well, can you do it? Yeah. And so they gave him Wearsby's commentaries. And my dad was started to teach Sunday school. And here's my dad now, retired factory worker. He's not Billy Graham, but he's new. He's a new creation. Why? Because the Spirit of God adds to the people of God by turning rebels into sons and daughters of God. You might be surprised who says yes when you preach the gospel. People that you never think in your wildest dreams will say yes. After all, look at yourself. What are you doing here? 
I meet people on a plane all the time. They're like, so what do you do? I'm like, well, why don't you guess? They're like, well, I don't know. You, you look like maybe you're in the UFC. Maybe you're in a you know, rock and roll. Maybe you own a Harley shop, a tattoo parlor. You're Chris Daughtry. You're Vin Diesel. You know, <laughs> all of these things. They, whatever it is, they go through the whole list. And then I tell them, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and their expression is, is priceless. They have no category for that. And I'm like, believe me, pal, I'm more surprised than you are. I've become everything I never intended to be. And it's by the sheer grace of God. So we give glory to God. I hope these in truth encourage you. Acts 1 and 2, promise fulfilled. They say when Queen Elizabeth II ascended to the throne in England in 1952, she wasn't coronated in 1953, big celebration in 1953. And the way they celebrated her ascension to the throne was they gave out gifts to all the children in England. And there was quite an uproar about it because the, gifts, the kids got different gifts. In a very similar way, when Jesus ascended to the throne in Acts 1, in Acts 2, he gave gifts to the kids. And all of us get to play. And like those kids who've never seen the queen, even though they've got the gift, they know she's on the throne. We haven't seen him face to face yet. But we know he's on the throne. The Spirit of God is giving evidence he's on the throne. And soon our faith will end in sight. And we'll fall on our face. And we'll bow down before this great king, who is the king. May God grant us grace as we endeavor to be his witnesses. Father, we bless you. We thank you. Thank you for this weekend, being able to immerse ourselves in your scriptures, to be washed by the water of the word. We pray for one another now as we prepare to go our own way. Father, I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be global Christians, global disciple makers, what a privilege, Lord, it is to be part of your mission. Young and old, male and female, gossiping the gospel, doing justice and mercy, all for the glory of our King. Guard us from pride, guard us from the evil one, we pray. Guard us from sin, help us to be your people. Lord, for every student, every leader here, we pray that the word of God would increase and multiply in their congregation, that you would add to their number daily those who are being saved. Help us to trust your gospel. Help us to be confident that your Holy Spirit is at work. And I pray that our lives would not be about ourselves, but would they would point people to the King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said.